technology and you know these sort of data-centric innovations are forcing them to become less tactical and more strategic to shift from kind of looking at resumes or you know sifting through profiles online to managing the clients managing the candidates and providing the human touch so the idea is like in any other field that technology should take care of the stuff that is repetitive predictable and standardized and then humans need to upskill and reskill themselves and become more like talent agents you know that's kind of like the model that we try to follow Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Dr. Thomas Chamaro Pramuzic. He is an international authority on psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. Some of the things that I've learned from him, reading some of his 10 books and some of his 150 papers, are that the 80-20 principle also works in reverse. So whilst 80% of your output will come from 20% of your people, the same is true of your problems. And 80% of the errors will be caused by 20% of your people. So that's worth knowing. And also it's worth knowing that in the data, he's found that companies spend way more time on development than they do on talent acquisition. And that that perhaps should be their focus. So he's currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group. He is Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University. He's previously held a load of other academic positions and one of those uh, industrial positions where he's, he's been CEO at Hogan Assessment Systems. So I guess lots of, lots of, a number of our larger clients have used Hogan as their assessment tool when looking at the leadership teams and how to manage diversity and performance. So we have a um, fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Thomas. I'm sure you will enjoy listening to that conversation. I'm Dr. Thomas Chamorro Premzik. I'm an organizational psychologist from Argentina, and I'm a professor at Columbia and UCL and the chief innovation officer at Manpower Group. Okay. What do you do as the chief innovation officer? Well, specifically, you know, the, my team tries to use technology and data and assessments all the way to analytics and AI to help recruiters reimagine human potential and find better jobs and careers for people. I think, you know, the world of recruitment has not changed very much in 50 or 70 years. So my, our company started 70 years ago. 
and you know people mostly find jobs and find people to fill those jobs but in this time even in the last 15 20 years the landscape of talent and skills has changed dramatically so you now used to you need to use data tools evidence and things like algorithms and analytics to match people to the right job and so the team that I lead is responsible for creating solutions, products, or tools that basically augment recruiters' productivity with the purpose or in the pursuit of helping people find more meaningful and, you know, sort of uh, relevant and prosperous jobs. Are you making recruitment at scale more productive or are you making low-volume recruitment more specific and accurate? Oh, yeah, it's a very, very, uh, you know, good technical terminology, which I, I'm not sure people listening to us <laughs> will, will be able to interpret. But I mean, you know, mostly we are in the high volume kind of uh, game. And, you know, I when I when I first kind of left the academic or kind of scientific bubble in Cocoon to try to apply some of the science of predictable performance and assessments to the real world, I was really very focused on the latter, on small volume, high touch, high end, you know. So let's let's say that you want to hire a CEO, uh, you know. No technology today could help you do this in a, in a touchless or disintermediated way. You know, even if you have the best algorithms to scrape, YouTube, uh, Netflix, Spotify, Amazon, your bank statements, etc. I mean, you would never hire a CEO without actually spending time with them, interviewing them, and maybe putting them through a long assessment, which helps. But if you have to hire 200,000 people and you have to pick between 2 million candidates, and these are relatively um, predictable and you know homogeneous jobs, you cannot afford to spend six hours with each candidate and you cannot afford to, you know, look for certain qualifications or skills. So all the innovation in the talent acquisition space is at the high volume end of the market. And there's a really interesting redefinition of the recruiters, of human recruiters in the space, because technology and, you know, these sort of data-centric innovations are forcing them to become less tactical and more strategic to shift from kind of looking at resumes or, you know, sifting through profiles online to managing the clients, managing the candidates and providing the human touch. So the idea is like in any other field that technology should take care of the stuff that is repetitive, predictable and standardized. And then humans need to upskill and reskill themselves and become more like talent agents. You know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the model that we try to follow. Are you introducing testing into that process or as opposed to just sort of scanning and ingesting CVs? You know, in in some instances, we put people through some assessments and assessments are still really useful if you want to evaluate soft skills. Like if you want to know if somebody is curious, hardworking, reliable, uh, empathetic, if they are an ethical person, all these things you can do with assessments. The problem is that, you know, In the old days, a good assessment would take 30 or 40 minutes. Now, if it's five minutes, it's too long for people, you know. So so we often cannot even afford to put people through an assessment, especially when you have strong talent markets and tight talent markets and it's a candidate-centric game. 
If you ask them to do something that takes extra time, you lose the candidate. So more and more, we have to rely on the data that we have, on the data that you're able to ingest and use, of course, you know, in an ethical and legal way. And then if you can throw in three or four questions that through machine learning and AI can basically have similar predictive power as in the old days, 20 questions, then you do that. But it's probably in about 20% of the cases that we use assessments. And if we do, it's mostly to give people some feedback, you know, because I think there's a lot of value in people understanding themselves better, especially if you want them to make the right choice. You know, there's a difference between if you go and buy a house or an apartment, the real estate agent, do you like this? And you say, yes, okay, here it is. You know, let's sign the deal and, you know, same with a car. If you're managing people's careers, it's important to help them understand that even if they get a job, it might not be the right job for them. And even if they haven't thought about a job, it might be the right job for them. So, you know, assessments and data can help you kind of uh, have that discussion. Okay. As you were talking about this hiring a CEO, I was almost, what came into my mind was something that told me that I could have ordered a meal and it would have been delicious in a restaurant, but I never went to the restaurant and I never ate the meal. And I was thinking, but I'd always want to go to the restaurant and eat the meal. Do you think you'll end up with things that are, are useful at, at smaller scale? Or is it always, is it going to continue to be at the high volume end for a long time? I think it starts at the high volume end, but then it kind of, you know, creeps into trickles, I guess, up into the small volume, more senior game. You know, the reality is that even, even traditional executive search firms today need to persuade their clients, especially with what they charge. You know, I mean, if you're charging 30% of yearly compensation, irrespective of results for a certain amount of time, you know, you better persuade the client that you know what you're doing. Finding people has been commoditized. You can go onto LinkedIn and find anybody. But the ability to know people and understand what it would mean to have a certain person running a business, that's when you need to use the science. It's just that at that level, you know, you have a lot of time per candidate. It's weirdly not easy to actually know whether you made a mistake or not. Same happens, by the way, you know, with when people vote for a prime minister or for a president, you know, it's very hard for people to actually make an objective assessment of whether somebody did a good job or not because you know, we're guided by our intuition, we're very tribal or partisan, etc. When you have volume, you can quantify um, you know, the hit rate and the error rate much better. If you know that through this tool, this algorithm, you, know, you have 20% of people less leaving or quitting the job or that engagement and productivity goes up by 30, 40%, you can do that when you have volume. If it's a single CEO, you know, we all know CEOs that will tell you that in my last job, we increased profitability by 30% of market cap by 40%. And you think it's like because of you or despite of you? Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, could have been 60 if we'd had the right guy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and politics is a great example of this. You know, even people are very, very heated discussions about whether, you know, Boris Johnson was good or bad, was he the worst, whatever. Yeah, we can have opinions, but you cannot run an actual experiment and see what would have happened if you had Tony Blair or if you had Theresa May or if you had, you know, Stephen Fry. <laughs> I'm sure Stephen Fry thinks he would have been better, but, you know, we all think we're better. <laughs> well, and then, and then you get these things that come up like, you know, comedian becomes the head of the government in Ukraine. And then he gets the, you know, an amazing test of courage and ability and steps up. And people, are, people look at it and go, that's amazing. And, you know, 
so you asked about the future, and I think this is a really interesting part of it. I think as the world becomes more complex and it's harder and harder to rely on our intuition to make inferences, whether it is, you know, to choose whom you date or whom you work for or whom you interact with or whom you trust. But because the complexity calls for a higher degree of effort in understanding and, you know, making sense of things, our reaction is we become really, really lazy and we want to play it by ear. You know, it's almost like we go in the opposite direction. So today in most places, people want to decide whether they vote for someone based on a 30 second televised, you know, debate. Because the alternative, if you want to take this seriously, is you, know, you probably need a PhD in political science and to spend all of your time assessing, you know. And even then, you probably cannot predict because things are difficult. So I think it's not a coincidence that we're seeing an uptick in charismatic, populist, entertaining leaders, whether it is, you know, Zelensky or Trump or Putin or, you know, you have them on both sides. It's because substance is a lot harder to grasp. So we cling more and more to style. And, you know, and, and this is a really, really big problem because you know, if, if all style and no substance gets you further than some substance, but not very much style, then, you know, you have the leaders we mostly have, you know, which is like, uh, and, and, and if we're not capable of acknowledging that we make mistakes and we actually fight each other because we cling to our choices, there's not a lot of maturity in followers or voters to elevate the quality of leaders, you know? We spend a lot of time criticizing and arguing about leaders, but followers are even more important, especially when you have democratically elected leaders. And so do you have a, do you have a theory? Is it the change in the way we consume information that has resulted in this, do you think? I think it's the change in the availability of information and the pressure to use information and the fact that we are overwhelmed, right? So anybody, if you go back to the 19th century or the you know kind of early years of the Enlightenment, and you told Voltaire or Diderot or any of these people that in 200 years you would have had all the knowledge in the world perfectly organized uh, and everybody's you know accessible to everybody in, in, in our fingertips, so to say, for free these people would have probably expected that humans are going to become really, really smart, really, really knowledgeable. And of course, it had the opposite effect, because if you know that the answer is retrievable or accessible, you just don't even bother finding out, you know. Uh, I remember in the sort of maybe not the early, early, but the kind of mid-level mid years of the internet, sort of like 2007, 10 years after, it, we were all in these situations where we're in a bar or pub and people either ask questions and, you know, you started to kind of, if you, if you couldn't retrieve it, go on Google and find the answer, you felt really, really bad. But for the most part, you know, it required investment in skills and knowledge to have these conversations. Now, you know, we just become very, very lazy. And of course, the proliferation of fake news and fake facts, etc., fits into this picture because there's so much information that the average person is less and less able to, to discern and disentangle, you know, facts from 
stories that are captivating and perhaps self-enhancing and self-fulfilling, but a lie. And if you add to this the algorithms that filter stuff and create the echo chamber, etc., you can see why, in a way, this is my next book, which is coming up in, in February. Like, my main argument is that there's a lot of kind of fixation on whether AI, artificial intelligence, is becoming smarter and smarter and how smart it will become. But in the process, humans have become dumber, in, in essence, you know. We are... We are diluting ourselves and kind of uh, downgrading our intellect as opposed to upgrading ourselves through the help of information and knowledge. Yeah. And is it different by gender? No, that's not, you know, I mean, so, so there's some gender differences in, in curiosity, but not on kind of a overall levels, but more on the type of curiosity that you see in you know, in between, if we're looking at biological sex, right, between men and women, whereby, you know, sensation seeking or thrill seeking and curiosity in terms of seeking adrenalizing experiences, being an adrenaline junkie and wanting, you know, the kind of uh, adventure seeking and thrill seeking is a little bit higher in men than women. And the more masculine you are, also from a kind of self-identification perspective, the more the more you seek these activities and the more you enjoy, you know, tsunami surfing, scuba diving, and uh, even eating spicy food and smoking and taking drugs. I mean, there is a reason why typically self-destructive tendencies and habits that put your life at risk are more common in men yeah. than women, right? So the, so the curiosity kills the cat kind of type is more common in men than in than in women. Women, however, have higher levels of social curiosity. So they're more interested in other people, you know, which is why they tend to listen more than men. And they have higher levels of empathy. And, you know, they're kind of, even when they're not very extroverted, they're more sociable in the sense that, you know, they enjoy meeting others, not for exhibitionistic tendencies and for wanting to be the center of attention, but because they are kind of uh, more interested in other people. And then intellectually, there's no differences, you know, I mean, historically, we thought, oh, well, but, you know, there's more Nobel Prize winners or scientists, etc. There are male, there are female. Yes, but that's by and large due to opportunities and sexism. Today, in the vast majority of subjects, more women than men go to university, more women than men graduate, and more women than men end up with higher levels of grades and academic performance. You know? So it changed very, very rapidly in only 50 or 100 years. Well, there was an article I was reading recently about the almost the, uh, the fall of males going to university in the US and that nobody quite understands why that's happened. I mean, it's not just that more women are going to university. It's, it seems the pro- proportion of men is actually coming, falling down. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the, the U.S. higher educational system has, you know, there's a lot of issues. I mean, I think college debt is now larger than the whole car industry or, you know, car loans and debt in the U.S. So, and of course, everybody thinks that it's a great idea if the vast majority of people go to university. But by definition, if that happens, you end up with a very small, selected, elite percentage of colleges creating most of the value and churning out most of the in-demand talent. And in order to access this, you have to not just have skills, but also have a lot of money. It's a very interesting but perverse kind of a 
vicious cycle whereby meritocracy ends up being very conflated with privilege. And of course, you can break that if you have people from outside coming to this course. And if, if India and China produce a lot of people who are quantitatively gifted and, you know, they go there, the competition is there. So I think, look, I think there's a little bit of supply and demand issues at stake there. And I also think that uh, in for many of the jobs that are available in the U.S. and in other places, there's really no need to go to university anymore. You know, apprenticeships and skills or experience would probably be more useful. I mean, for a while, employers have been complaining that when they pay for smart, you know, graduates who come with great credentials, they're entitled. They have to learn everything they need to learn later on. And, you know, they're overpaying for them. And, you know, after a month or two, they want to be managers. And then, you know, they want to work in hybrid conditions and be their own boss and have a limited vacations and sushi chef and, you know, masseuse on site. And, you know, that's those kind of things could be corrected if you have a cooling off or a recession, which, you know, of course, I hope doesn't happen. But structurally, it, it's inevitable and it needs to happen just to correct, make these market corrections. Okay. And if you look back, given, you know, the, we've just been talking about in terms of world leaders and a rise of charisma, if you like, as a, a factor in selection, the paper and then the book that you wrote about male leadership, is it still true? Is the world still full of rubbish male leaders? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I think, in fact, you know, I think when, when the original article on why so many incompetent men become leaders came out in 2012, 2013, it sort of touched a nerve because, you know, it wasn't the intent to ask a provocative questions, but we realized when it immediately went, you know, onto kind of number one and stayed very, very high in the, in the popularity kind of a table for some time that it sort of... The article and also the title touched a nerve, you know. It's almost like the question that everybody had been asking themselves or wanting to ask but was afraid of asking, you know. And so that's why. And, you know, there were some examples given them that are still valid today <laughs> if you if you go into the article. It took seven years or so or eight for the publisher, the same publisher, to decide to do a book on it. And, you know, and, and, and they kept on saying through that time, you know, every other year or so, it's like, oh, what do you think about doing a book? And they said, fine, you know, let's do it. And they said, oh, we don't know. You know, HBR kept on saying 80% of our readers are male executives. So it's kind of like we don't, you know, we, it will be insulting and kind of uh, demeaning. So we don't want to put them off. And I kept on saying, you know, don't worry, because one of the characteristics of being and incompetent male leaders, which isn't all of the readers, but some of the readers, is lack of self-awareness. You know? so <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who read the book and say, this is fantastic. I know people like that. And they don't, they, they don't think it's themselves. When in fact, if you read it and you worry and you think this might be you as a leader, that, then that's probably not you, you know, because if you, if you question it. But yeah, I mean, the article, even before the book came out, every year or so there was some event you know be it brexit or the rise of some kind of populist charismatic but not very competent or qualified leader that pushed the article back to the top and of course in recent years you know we have seen um, 
women who aren't very competent and who in fact resemble many or epitomize and embody many of the dysfunctional and even parasitic characteristics of the incompetent men I described come to power, which is also explained by the model in the book, right? Because we focus so much on charisma and we focus so much on the loudest voice and we focus so much on those who are Machiavellian and self-promotional and who manipulate, you know, and advance their power for their own sake as opposed to for the benefit of the organization that actually we can equalize, you know? So it's a very bad way to achieve gender parity to ensure that there's as high a proportion of incompetent women to make it to leadership jobs as men. But you could argue it's at least, you know, some some way to equalize things. But of course, <laughs> it'll be much better to raise the bar for not just men, but for everybody and to ensure that we select leaders on talent. You know, that's why... Even when people don't like the title, if they read the, mo- the book and they understand the message, it's fundamentally a book about what leaders should look like. And even the gender diversity or the diversity and inclusion angle is quite different from what you see out there because the argument is that the best gender diversity intervention is to focus on talent, not on gender. You know, If we selected leaders like we taste wine in a sort of a blind wine tasting exercise, um, we would end up with uh, 50 or 60% of women in charge. When you focus on gender or biological sex, you allow yourself to replicate this kind of, you know, Thatcher-esque profile of, of leaders who are women, but they outmale males in masculinity and they are sort of like, you know, bulldozers and very bold, very abrasive, and they lack empathy and they lack competence or technical expertise. And, you know, it's interesting that in the UK, we had Boris Johnson preceded by Theresa May, who I think everybody is starting to miss now, and now followed by Liz Truss, you know. (laughs) So there's a change in gender, but not so much an upgrade in, you know, in quality. Yes. Well, I uh, I had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago, Rasmus Hogarth. And one of the things that he said is he said, look, he said, the evidence is all in. The best thing is businesses run by women, staffed by women, outperform all other businesses. Next best is run by women and staffed by men. Next, you know, and it just, you know, the worst is run run by men, staffed by men. It just seems, will we ever catch up? I mean, do you, what, you know, gender parity, do you think it we will get there? Yeah, well, I think we will get there. And, you know, even though when you look at the forecasts, whether it's from, you know, the World Economic Forum or McKinsey or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, whatever, and the report that, you know, it will be 150 years or so until then. So, you know, we're more likely to destroy the planet before we, you know, we reach gender parity. <laughs> so... Uh, which, of course, is depressing. I think it might happen a little bit faster, but even if it takes that much, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long, you know. We are the product of 300,000 years of evolution. For some of this time, humans lived in pretty egalitarian groups. I mean, hunter-gatherer societies and foraging societies, they were more egalitarian than most countries are today. But then in the last 
four, five hundred years, you know, the, the model of the alpha male and the very aggressive kind of dominant kind of leader has been uh, the dominant feature now. The good news is that if you have the evidence, the data points that you mentioned and some others, and you have organizations that are, even if they're not interested for altruistic reasons in gender parity and they're not interested in the social justice case, but they're interested in the business case, they want to be more effective, they're going to transform before their competitors and, you know, distance themselves from the competitors and outperform them. So it's in that way that, um, you know, the, the sort of this Darwinian process is at stake is, is not so much competition within a system or organization, but competition between the systems, right? So if you have a country that, or a, a company or an organization that allows um, the most aggressive, ruthless person to get to the top, that person will weaken the system and that system will collapse. You know, it's, I, I, I was born and raised in Argentina, which for the last 100 years have been, has been devolving and collapsing and, you know, getting worse and worse, which is a, not, not an easy thing to manage, but, you know, we somehow have. Why? Because we perpetually elect and select people based on, you know, how selfish, how Machiavellian and how ruthless they are. If you compare that as a system to, let's say, I don't know, Singapore or Denmark or even, you know, the US, you can see how the competition is between systems and systems that become more meritocratic and the bet on talent should outperform the others. You know? So I think even though a lot of countries are under external pressure and a lot of organizations are under external pressure to reform and to have quotas, etc., is the inside out kind of transformation that leads to real change. And, you know, and that's difficult because those who are the status quo have no desire to disrupt themselves, <laughs> you have no desire to kind of eliminate themselves there. If you are the Turkey, you don't want to vote for Christmas. And if you are an incompetent man in charge, you don't want to allow, you know, competent people, women or male, to have your job. Having said that, some people care not just about themselves, but about their teams and organizations. And it's on them that we rely for change and for progress. And this might be, you know, politicians, leaders, and, you know, those who, are, those who have influence and power. And what, um, what's your definition of leadership competence? Oh, very simple. So, you know, first of all, I think, lead let's start with leadership. Leadership, I think, is the process and it's really a psychological process, in essence, whereby an individual enables a group of people to become a team, a high-performing team. Okay. So it's the process and within it or under it, the range of qualities and tactics and strategies and strengths and competencies that enable people to collaborate effectively. You know, we are here, you and I are here today because of the historical product of successful collaboration and then competence is just doing that well you know because you can be in a position of influence or power but if you're not making others better and if you're not at least temporarily eliminating the selfish interests that humans have and enabling them to become a team or a unit then you're not a competent leader you know it's actually there's a, there's a really really interesting sort of a idea that I think Freud first suggested, which is that, you know, humans 
are kind of paradoxical creatures in the sense that we are both very pro-social and very kind of a collectivistic and you know very other oriented but we're also very selfish you know so so we simultaneously want to get along with others and if we don't you know if if we don't have others and we if we can't rely on others if we, if we don't have others we can't even survive our first kind of a time in the world so we depend on others and need to get along with others but as soon as we do we also want to get ahead of others and compete and so this tension between your desire to beat others and outperform them and succeed and accumulate resources and your need to collaborate with others in order to outperform other groups is what leadership articulates and manages that's why when you have i don't know if you like sports but if you like football for example why doesn't it ever work when you have a team of 11 superstar divas or players who go there and they're only in it for their salaries that are the same in basketball and same in the NFL it could work a little bit when you have a strong leader that suppresses the ego of the people and enables them to care about each other and to align their interests in the pursuit of a common goal and so that's really important and at the level of societies you have to have that and that's what institutions and values kind of articulate because if not if you have like a dog eats dog society and you know we're sort of in like the dystopian view that Milton Friedman and others articulated it just doesn't work it just doesn't work it will work for very few people but you're not optimizing for the majority of people and those societies tend to collapse and where does the lack of self-awareness come from so you said you know people who were incompetent leaders would read the article or read the book and think that's not me certainly the evidence that i see mckinsey did a study recently about about um, drug development teams in pharma companies around the world and and 75% of the teams thought they were above average and so it can only mean that they didn't try to find out because if they went to find out they would realize they weren't above average so is is at the heart of incompetence that lack is a lack of curiosity or or where does it come from yeah so you know fundamentally humans are not very good at self awareness you know we are very rational creatures but uh, we don't optimize for understanding the world or understanding ourselves but we mostly optimize for feeling good about ourselves that's the default you know it's quite interesting you can go to airports or libraries or you know bookstores if you still find some of those they seem to be coming back and if you go into kind of the management section or the psychology section there are all these books that are necessarily self help books that are trying to make you feel better If you read that or see the amount and the pr- proportion of books that are trying to elevate your self-esteem, you might easily conclude that humanity is deeply insecure and that we need to. But it's the opposite. We have big egos, and anything that inflates them, whether it's positive feedbacks from our managers or a compliment from our spouse or you know uh, a stranger telling us that they like our shoes or our voice or whatever that is, we retain. and anything that basically sort of uh, destabilizes a positive view of ourselves and hurts our ego we ignore and that's the norm right so and what's interesting and what i've always studied is where people are in that continuum if you imagine there's a self you know there's a normal distribution with some people being sort of in the donald trump end of the spectrum and others being in the kind of a you know pathologically insecure end of the spectrum 
people, realism is a lot rarer and a lot less frequent than optimism. Delusional optimism is the norm. In fact, in, in psychological terms, in, in the science of kind of social psychology, when somebody is a realist, you label them depressive realist because understanding the world is hard. And there's somewhat of a kind of self-fulfilling or snowballing effect whereby the more of a high we get when we are positively reinforced, the more dependent we are on this, which I think explains a lot of what happens in social media, you know. I mean, just look at whether it's Facebook or Instagram, you know. I've seen people be almost clinically depressed because they posted something and people ignored it, you know. And so, and on the other hand, if you do something and people tell you you're amazing and then you reciprocate, we create this kind of fake positive feedback, feedback bubble that actually makes us more and more narcissistic. And, you know, again, populist leaders, whether they are in a, in a running a company or running a country, they cater to this narcissism because they tell us that we're amazing and it's all somebody else's fault and that if they come, they're going to make us rich and happy and healthier and improve everything without us having to do anything at all. So it's almost like, you know, if there was a pill to distort reality forever, we would take it. And, you know, unsurprisingly, the consumption of antidepressants and pharmacos, et cetera, has been going up around the same time frame. So... It's a really, really critical point, right? And I think if everybody becomes more and more deluded and more and more narcissistic, there's going to be a premium. There's going to be a high demand for those who are capable of taking negative feedback and of, you know, basically embracing reality or having a reality check. And I think with leaders it's difficult because if, if, if you have to bear tough news and tell people that actually unless we make adjustments and unless we work hard and unless we work for others. And, you know, if somebody comes and tells you you're not as special as your parents told you or as you think you are, you're most likely not going to vote for them. But that's exactly what you need. And, you know, I spend some time coaching leaders and I always say the goal of any serious and ethical and competent coach mostly is to lower leaders' confidence, to help them understand that they're not as brilliant as they think so that they align their self-views with other people's views on them. And of course, you know, I rarely end up coaching, you know, pathological narcissists because they don't want me and I can't help them. But there's a lot of people who could do with a little bit of help and who would immediately experience the benefits of actually being more self-critical and being more humble. Last, last interesting point, which is if you look at the rise of the East compared to the West and the rise Asia, right? Especially in the last 20, 30 years. These are societies that have historically valued not self-belief, but self-knowledge and self-criticism and humility. And of course, we're trying to contaminate them by exporting, you know, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and making them more kind of a narcissistic. But I think there's a lot to say about this sort of more self-critical, modest, humble, discipline work ethic compared to the, you know, we're all stars, we're all talent, we're all special, just like anybody else. Yeah. Okay. Thomas, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? I guess, you know, the, the, maybe the price of Bitcoin, the valuation of Bitcoin. <laughs> although it, it, it's, it's a real answer, right? And like that, I think, okay, oh my God, if I had bought back in 2011 or whenever it was, 
I wouldn't have to do a lot of things that I do now for, you know, professional living, etc. In a more philosophical way, you know, I think this might sound kind of very, very vague and abstract, but I have learned the older I get, the more I learn that I can learn stuff from people that at the beginning, you know, I would have dismissed and I would have said, oh, you know, these are people who are too different or they don't have anything to teach me, whatever. But the people that I learn from the most now are people who I would have either underestimated or not been that interested. You know, I am, I am much more profoundly interested in people who are different now. And, and I'm less interested in talking to people who think like me, you know, I think we all think back to the optimism bias. We all think that we are open-minded and we all think that we're more open-minded than we are. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, what open-minded people or what those who see themselves as open-minded say is like, I love hanging out with other people who are open-minded and therefore think like me. And, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, uh, so even when I talk to people, you know, I, I get a lot more out of people who think differently and make me question my ideas, especially if, if they annoy me. And, you know, it's, I do the same when I watch TV, I watch news that I, I disagree with and I try to see things from the other perspective. Okay, very good. Thank you. And what books should people pick up and read? Do you, you, you've written 10? Yeah. 10 books? Yeah, yeah. obviously all of mine, <laughs> uh, you know. Look, obviously it depends on what they like, but... Uh, well, what are you reading now that you're finding interesting and enjoyable? At the moment, I'm reading, there is a neuroscientist at Northwestern University who actually is becoming quite, quite popular as well. So, you know, she has a big TED talk, etc. called Lisa Barrett Feldman. So the last name is Feldman. And I am reading a book. She's written four or five books, but this is sort of her first you know, mainstream or trade slash popular book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And it's just wonderful. You know, she has a really, really unique ability. I mean, she's a brilliant writer and mostly she reads a lot. So you can see that influence, but she has a brilliant way of telling an accurate story about the brain that challenges a lot of our preconceptions about that and actually helps you understand yourself better. So there's a chapter, for example, with the title, The Brain is Not for Thinking, which you think like, okay, how is that possible? But it actually shows you how the brain, human brain optimizes for energy preservation. And if, if there is an easy and lazy way of doing something, you're gonna do it, you know? Which of course has implications for diversity because historically, you know, we had no interest in trying to make an effort to understand people who look differently and mostly, if you went outside your little group or your little tribe, you could be eaten, killed, or you would mostly get some pathogens, bacteria or parasites, which of course we've experienced in the last two years when we had social distancing and we were isolated, right? So I think it's a really good book to understand human nature, but she tells the story in a way that is very current and very relevant. I did a little podcast during COVID and I had her as a guest and we had a great conversation as well. Fab, what, what else? What else? So, you know, I read a lot about innovation. So let me see what I have here that I'm reading now. So this is a book on Jeff Bezos but Car by Carmine Gallo. I'm uh -huh. halfway through. Excellent book. I have a book by a good colleague, John Petrocelli, this, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit, which is a great, <laughs> great title. Right? Um, 
look, when I, when I travel, because I still prefer to read physical kind of books and not on my iPad, I devour all of the Oxford short introduction kind of books, right? So this is a really, it's sort of like a thorough and accurate version of a Wikipedia entry written by one expert on a big topic. So this one is war and religion that I'm reading, but you have on philosophers, on economics, on science. And so they're under this, a very short introduction series of Oxford and they're great, you know, and even though they're small, I mean, you know, it's probably two, three hours to consume it. What else? I have a great book called, oh, this one, let me just reach out to it. So obviously I'm very interested in AI and technology. Flynn Coleman, she is a lawyer with really, really encyclopedic knowledge on AI technology regulation, but she's written this book on the intersection between humans and technology that covers psychological aspects, the history of AI, um, philosophical aspects and the legal aspects. And she's amazing. And not, this book is not very widely known, so I would recommend it. Fabulous. That's brilliant. I, if I only did this podcast to get book recommendations from smart people, it would be worth it. Ah, <laughs> what are you reading at the moment? I picked up a book called Die With Zero. Oh, okay. That's a good title. Intriguing title. So the idea is that you should die with no money in the bank because people will oversave. Well, people will either fundamentally oversave or undersave. And uh, so... The idea of oversaving is a bad one. So they try. The author tries to challenge the myth that you know you should uh, you should leave money to your children. The average age that somebody inherits in the United States is sixty-seven, and his premise is those people would much rather have that money, however much it is, in their thirties or forties than in their sixties. That's amazing. Yeah, and I and I, I know there's in, in very very salient and significant cultural and national differences in how much people save, right? With Japan being the oversaving kind of end of the spectrum and the average person is a lot. The US is actually so low. If you look at especially the model, I think it's like people have either negative or 80, 100 kind of dollars in the bank. So that sounds very intriguing. I'll add that to my list as well. Yeah, brilliant. Thomas, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for coming on. Likewise, and just, you know, the plug. Why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it? Yeah, written at a time where ties were a lot more popular than now. But, uh, you know, the, the incompetent men are still here, so it's still current. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.